this is the last and final lecture yeah so this is the kind of last and final lecture that we are having looking at the uh, and of course it's important to do that because we are talking about uh, the world having changed very much right uh, when we talk about Tudor England right you will actually find that things have settled down in many ways and there are different issues politically and socially which England faces at that point of time right now one of the things that we are talking about in Chaucer's England one of the most important things about it is uh, England is around the place right you have 1066 when you have the Norman conquest right and you can count 200 years after that yeah so you'll have 1266 right so for that amount of period the English language is dominated by French yeah and you also have the idea of the Romans before that conquering England and establishing their kind of structure onto the English society right and of course a lot of it gets uh, filtered down because if you read earlier accounts yeah you have some kind of uprisings against the colonization of the Romans but those are not long lasting uh, largely because people are still uh, not aware and as educated as you get them in Chaucer's day right and we find that even in Chaucer's day uh, you have uh, not very much that has changed though you have before Chaucer you have Henry II and Thomas Beckett right and all those kind of people who are very important in the idea of the medieval world right but so you have idea of the the idea of the secular and the state uh, which is already coming up in the time of Thomas Beckett yeah which is much before Chaucer right so that's something that uh, we might like to think about right in fact Chaucer's Canterbury Tales are to the uh, the uh, to the feast or for the feast of uh, Thomas a Beckett right and that's why uh, the pilgrimage is something that is important even today for the people of England right so the the idea that Thomas a Beckett was murdered in the cathedral uh, in spite of him not being quite a good person and not being quite a good priest right in many ways right uh, he's given a kind of a sainthood uh, which is what the English would think of him as a martyr right and an English martyr and an English saint yeah so with that we begin actually we look at the idea of the Canterbury Tales right and the Canterbury Tales Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is actually trying to say that well we are going on a picnic or are we going on a pilgrimage right and we've already done the Canterbury Tales we've done the Canterbury Tales so you know about that right we were talking about the idea of the pilgrimage and we're talking about the idea of the picnic right or is it a pilgrimage or is it a picnic right so one keeps wondering about that right and the question is when you talk about a pilgrimage you're also talking about an outing 
right? A picnic kind of thing that you have, right? So uh, you have to look at those aspects, right? When we're talking about the idea of Chaucer and the age of Chaucer, right? So we know Chaucer and we call it the age of Chaucer because what we have over there is uh, a critique of the uh, the uh, situation in England in Chaucer's time, right? Yeah, and it's significant because uh, you have people who have written before him, right? But Chaucer's treatment of uh, the uh, the different kinds of people in his time and the documentation of these people is very important, right? And I think uh, that's why we call it the age of Chaucer, right? So Chaucer is a very significant figure, right? And we don't talk about the king, right? We don't even bother about that, right? But we talk about the age of Chaucer, right? Now, what happened in the age of Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales and outside the Canterbury Tales is what is important, right? So by and large, you have after the, uh, the Roman Empire is already in a state of decline, right? You don't have to wait the Tudor period for it to actually uh, <clears throat> decline. Uh, yeah, the Tudor period and uh, the late the, the late fifteenth century, sixteenth century, right? Yeah, where it's already in the actual uh, we have have the Reformation and all those kind of things, right? We don't have to wait for that to happen, right? But you already have the Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire in a state of decline. We already have the priests who are set up by Rome, right? So the Holy Roman Empire is supposed to be uh, working for as a kind of religious empire and they're not supposed to be fiddling with the secular affairs of the countries that are part of the Roman Empire, right? Now, there is by the time you have the Roman Empire and by the time uh, England is under the Roman Empire, right? Uh, and the Holy Roman Empire, that too, right? We already have the idea of uh, the division between the Holy Roman Empire, right? And the secular affairs and the religious affairs, right? So the religious affairs is what happens with the appointment of bishops, the appointment of priests, Right, all this is controlled and uh, looked after by Rome, right? And of course, before this time, you have, or even yeah, even in this time, you have people like the Borgias who are French popes, right? And we have the famous play that Bernard Shaw writes, which is called Big Million, uh, sorry, which is called Saint John, right? Where we're talking about the whole idea of the role of the church the role of the French church, the restoration of the Dauphin of France onto the throne, right? Yeah, all those kind of things keep happening, right? And uh, this becomes an important kind of uh, history that we look at, right? But when we talk about the age of Chaucer, all this, a lot of that is passed by, right? The idea of a feudal uh, England, a feudal Europe, is something that is settled down and of course it might have had the notions of uh, uh, protection, protectorate, that's the basic structure 
where some people get protection from uh, a person who's got a lot of physical power, right? Yeah, so we have actually come to Caxton's age, right? And we are already talking about the idea of armies, etc., which are private armies, right? And not really the armies of kings, right? So that's something that by the age of Caxton, we find that things have changed over there. But the feudal structure still remains, right? If private people can have armies, that means the feudal structure is still there, right? Yeah, and that means these are people who have a lot of clout, right? But in, when we're talking about the age of Chaucer, we have the Lord of the Manor, right? And uh, the Lord of the Manor is a kind of a feudal lord, right? And you have what you call the serfs, who are absolutely bonded laborers, right? And they have no freedom. They're absolutely like slaves, right? So that's something that we have to look at when we're talking about Chaucer's England, right? So you, the idea of freedom, the, uh, like we have today, right, is something that doesn't exist, right? Okay, you have the Battle of Runnymede uh, in 12 uh, something, right? Yeah, and that's when you have uh, Parliament being set up, right? And uh, so Chaucer's day, they have Parliament still, right? That's not something that has gone away, but the idea of uh, the king having an army or you have the police force protecting them these are things that doesn't happen at that point of time these don't happen at that point of time right because uh, we have to wait at least to the 18th century right where the police force under robert peel who is the prime minister right actually changes right so uh, we have that much much later then you have public security, right? So when you have Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, you might wonder why the hell do these people have to go in a group? Yeah? Why do they not have to, why can't they go individual, right? Canterbury is so close to London, right? But we also have to remember that you don't have trains, you don't have buses, right? Uh, horseback and donkey back are what people travel by and maybe the rich can afford carriages though the carriages also are very few right very few people have carriages as we've seen in these two chapters right so these are things that don't normally happen right and when they happen uh, they are the only the rich people the land the the farmers and merchants at the end of the uh, the chapter which we dealt with in Caxton you have that right when you have the idea of the uh, the merchants coming up, right, and they being the people who export wool, etc. That's when you have the idea of the market, right, and you, that's when you have the idea of bales of uh, cloth being transported, right. Whether they were bales of cloth or just a lot of cloth being transported, we uh, don't know, right. Perhaps we wouldn't have the huge bales that we have today in the 20th century and the 21st century, right? But there were definitely, uh, the idea is that you had a settled down 
kind of a place when we're talking about Chaucer and we're talking about the idea of the feudal system that are already settled down, right? So the feudal system, and when we're talking about a social history, uh, and we're talking about the feudal system, you have people under the feudal system who are very powerful, right? And these are the people who own the, the manor and all the fields around it, right? So that's something that you get even when you have uh, representations of the castle, okay? The castle and the land around the castle belongs to the person who owns the castle, right? So that's the understanding. Even in India, if you look at the 16th century, right, uh, you have the idea of uh, the fort and all everything around the fort, right? So that becomes important, right? And that's something that one has to think about because we're talking about how, who owns the land, who owns whatever is going on, right? And do you have a kind of a rule, right? So we have small manors, right, which might become castles in some cases, right? And it's not a king who owns it, but a lord who owns a castle, right? So that's something that you find, which is all around the country, right? And you have, if, yeah, so the land is owned by the lord, a lot of it is ancestral, right? The serfs are again ancestral, right? And they keep staying on the land. Nothing changes very much, right? And uh, that's something that we must note, that changes happen slowly, right? Unless there are catastrophes, right? And the catastrophes that they suffer in the Middle Ages are wars and diseases like the plague, right? So the plague and the plague happens a number of times in Europe and in England, right? And a lot of people die because of the plague, right? And a lot of people or men go out to war, private armies of course, but they're hired, right? And they go out to Europe to fight wars that are happening. English wars are happening on French soil, right? Other kinds of wars which are all happening in England, uh, in Europe, right? And that takes a toll on the population, right? So that's one of the reasons why you have a shift in the idea of the manor house and the idea of the feudal lord and you have a new kind of order which we call the capitalist system which takes place because of this kind of a shift, right? So what happens in this kind of a shift is important largely because people uh, now know that they can get work not in the uh, not from the traditional lord who they have been serving for maybe two or three centuries, right? Yeah, but they find other people who are willing to give them work, right? And it's the younger people who do this because uh, they don't want to work for the lord, right? That kind of power of the lord is over, right? The kind of uh, action that the lord can take against them is over, right? And they sense that, and this is a change which is taking place on the ground, right? So they go from the manner that they are in to another manner, right? And when they go into that other manner, they get paid 
and the new thing that they're paying is coins, okay? And that's how they get their wealth, right? Of course, they could buy their freedom from the Lord by paying a certain amount of money and getting a certificate that they're no more serfs, right? So that's something that we have to think about because uh, these are not very rigid systems, right? No political systems and social systems are absolutely rigid, right? Today you might uh, not uh, like the idea of uh, getting married into a rigid or a caste which is not yours, right? Yeah, but maybe that will change and I hope that changes uh, in some time, right? Because when that changes, that means that society has changed, right? So what happens over here is you can see that there is a slow growth, right? And there is a strong demarcation between the Lord and the laborer, right? The Lord is a person who has all the property, right? Okay, they don't really need cash because the idea of cash as we know it is not something that they have. But they have land, they have a barter system, they pay in terms of labor and they pay in terms of food, right? So you, you, the laborer is kept and they have to look after him or her, right? And what happens of course, but very tragically so is uh, the idea of being a serf goes on from one generation to the other, right? And it's with, the, with some difficulty that they can get your freedom, right? So that of course changes thanks to the plague and thanks to the wars in Europe where many people die. So there are less hands. So the demographics changes, the population goes down. There are more people who want to go and work for other people who don't have anybody to work in their fields, right? So labor power has gone down, right? This is of course not very easy for us to understand, right? Except that uh, maybe in South India, you find that you cannot get people to clean your house, right? Yeah, today we might see that. If you go to South India, um, uh, especially Bangalore, you say, well, we can't get anybody to clean the house, right? And that becomes an issue, right? You can't get anybody to get coconuts down, right? From many parts of the coastal area of South India, right? And you've got a new breed of people who are looking for jobs. Many of them have come from the Northeast, right? Yeah. Some of them have come from Bihar, right? And they are learning to climb coconut trees because there is an absolute loss of labor power, right? Now, what has created that problem? Many people going to the Gulf, many people going, moving to Bombay, right? And other industrialized places, right? So these are the things that are happening, right? So slowly your culture is changing, yeah? The idea of hiring labor to clean the house, to uh, water your coconut plants, to uh, uh, work in your fields, all those things keep changing, right? So you might like to look at the idea of what is happening in England because the labor is now a commodity, right? Okay, the idea of commodity doesn't exist, okay? Commodity, commodification, all these things happen after you get a capitalistic system. But what, the, what Trevelyan is doing over here is he's taking us to the idea that the barter system is changing slowly, very, very slowly into a capitalist system, right? So people can actually, and the labor power has gone down because of the dearth of labor and because of the wars and the plague, 
right? Wars is one. Wars kill people, kill a lot of men, right? But also the plague has probably uh, decimated a lot of the population, right? So the population is very sparse. You need people to do work, laborers to do work, and you don't get them. And some people want to run away from the Lord who cannot enforce his kind of terms of ownership on them, right? Which is different from the slave movement in the United States, right? Yeah, so this is what is happening over here. So uh, they move off to some other kind of manner and they get a fee. And now with that fee, they are able to uh, free themselves one, some of them are able to buy land also with that. Of course, after a long period of time, first the idea of freedom is important, right? Then the idea of land, is buying land is important, right? And they also get what you call coins or you get money in terms of coins and not in terms of kind alone. But also you have people giving tenants a lot of land because they cannot run the land, right? You have to have tenants, or the, uh, you have to have uh, uh, serfs to plow your fields and get your crop, right? Now, when they can't do that, they start giving out uh, portions of land, and they make it a tenancy so that they get some kind of uh, income from the land, right? Some people do that, right? And then slowly. Yeah, slowly what happens is you have many people who, uh, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so uh, you have the tenants, yeah, and uh, very uh, slowly you have some people who are given land also by the uh, people of the manor in, in place of work, right? So it, it's still, the barter system is still there, the, the old feudal system is still there, but it's slightly modified and it takes a long long time to modify it because uh, gold or coin is available okay land or work results in owning a piece of land right and now there are many people who might own their land and also might work for the lord right and we talked about that right where the lords demand that you have to work for them for at least one day a week right but we must remember that the power of the lord over the, the serfs is uh, decreased or is decreasing, right? And to such an extent that the, the lords can't exert any control over them, right? And of course, we must remember that the idea of the law perhaps is not very strong, right? You don't have laws to say that somebody is owned by you and what does the person do, right? The ownership papers of the slaves probably they didn't even have all those kind of things going on, right? Yeah, it's just by understanding and by custom that it is done, right? We have, of course, the idea of the caste system which operates in India for centuries, right? Yeah, and we don't have papers to say that what caste you are, what, uh, yeah, uh, who uh, owns you because we have modern labor system going on in India in some portions. How does that collapse? That is something that we need to find out if we are doing a sociological analysis of India, right? Yeah. So, uh, what is interesting about Ramillion's stuff is he's talking about what happens in the 
capitalist world and how the feudal world slowly changes with the capitalist. Right? Now, the other thing that we're talking about, whether it's Ross in England or Caxton's in England, is the idea of the church and the clergy. Right? So, we have the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's a very important person. We must remember that Thomas Beckett becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury because he's a friend of Henry II, right? And Henry II thinks that if Thomas Beckett becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, then he will be able to control the state and the church, right? Though uh, uh, this man called Henry II is actually the first person in England to think of the church and the state being separate, right? So that's the kind of secularism they're talking about. They're talking about governing in a secular manner, right? They're not talking about uh, secularism as a social phenomenon because that perhaps was not required, right? There were very few Jews and uh, in the time of uh, Chaucer and Caxton, right? Is Chaucer talking about any Jews in his Canterbury Tales, right? That's something that we might like to think about, right? And you have uh, uh, people like Edward II uh, banishing the Jews. So that's a huge kind of a difference that you get. Uh, and in the time of Shakespeare, you have the Jews coming back, right? Yeah, so the idea of uh, the, the idea of the Jews, right? The idea of secularism is not like Indian secularism for the simple reason secularism means the state has to run on its own and the church should not interfere with the state, right? So when you're talking about appointment of bishops, yes, the church can do that, right? The state needn't do that, right? The state doesn't have to bother about who's a where is this priest going to be. That's not the work of the state, but that's the work of the church, right? So you have the conflict between the church and the state, and this is before Chaucer's time. And when Henry the Henry the Second finds out that uh, this man has changed, that Thomas Becket, he's changed, and he says that the church law and the state law, the church, the state can't interfere with the church, right? Yeah. But of course, the king is under the church because he's a Christian and a Catholic, right? So you have that kind of contradiction which is going on, right? And the church doesn't want to change because you have a lot of people who are very comfortable, right? So that's what happens and they don't have to bother about changing because they get their income, right? They get their four meals a day and they've acquired a lot of properties either by donations or uh, uh, you have rich people who also join the churches, right? And they have, uh, they get their property and the property becomes church property, right? So they get a lot of property, right? And uh, this is something else that happens, right? And of course, we have a different kind of society because uh, we, we are talking about people who are moving, right? People uh, who uh, actually they believe in the church, but the church again has got its own kind of norms. That is, Latin is the language of the church, right? 
and the services of the church or the rituals of the church are conducted in Latin, right? And uh, that is something that many people do not know. Only the lords and the priests know about Latin. Yeah, have your question? Yes, somebody's put up. Yeah, please put, uh, yeah, please say it. person who gets this idea of secularism up okay in in the uh, in the notion of legal history that's what henry the second is all about right so who was thomas beckett actually you're supposed to have already finished uh, the canterbury tales right yeah so when you're talking about the canterbury tales you're talking about this man called thomas beckett right now what's interesting about thomas beckett is he says we have today when you talk about him you might look at this wrong notion that you have about uh, the, the Muslims, right? And you, you might talk about jihad, right? Yeah. What is Thomas Beckett doing? The same thing, right? He's saying that you do not have right a right to tell me what to do, right? The church has a court and the church court is called the... Uh, the canon law court right yeah and it later becomes an inquisition court right where you can be put to death when you study saint john and i hope you do right because that's an important play of uh, bernard shaw right yeah but the idea is that you have an inquisition court or the church court which has a lot of power right and the church court can throw you out uh, of the church right so what happens over there is something even more interesting because I wonder what happens to a person who is excommunicated, right? Nobody would look at them, right? Nobody would give them water. They're not supposed to give water or they're not supposed to give them food. How they live, I don't know, right? Yeah, and of course, I don't believe that it was so watertight, yeah? I'm sure that there were people who used to smuggle food to them, right? And of course, uh, excommunication was not such an easy thing. Right? Yeah? So even uh, by the time of Martin Luther, excommunication also loses ground. Right? Yeah? And what is interesting is Martin Luther speaks very boldly to the Inquisition court and they listen to him because uh, he's actually gained a lot of power. Right? He's gained a lot of political power in the social world. Right? And uh, that's what happens to him and that's of course at a later date. Yeah? A little later than Chaucer. Right? Yeah, but uh, and there are a lot of social reasons or technical reasons which go into it. Yeah, so what happens to Thomas Beckett? He's a commoner, right? He becomes a friend of Henry the the second, right? He becomes a chancellor, right, of uh, of England, right? And uh, 
Henry the Second wants him to be Archbishop, right? Because Henry the Second will have uh, total power. That's what any kind of dictator wants, right? And Henry the Second is a dictator in the sense that uh, they don't have any other form. The form of government today, even in England, is a monarchy. Though in practice, because of the Parliament and because of having this idea of consultation and the idea of a discussion before you put anything into law, right? And a consensus, right? So that's been a long tradition from the Battle of Runnymede, right? Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. So that's with say, uh, King John, right? Uh, a lot before Chaucer, right? Now, what is interesting is uh, to answer your question: Who is Thomas a Becket, right? Yeah. One thing you can do is you can read up more on Thomas a Becket because he's an important person to read. Yeah. You can read or look at uh, John Onbees. He's a French writer, right? And it's made into a movie called uh, Becket, right? Yeah, of course, it's uh, Bollywoodized it, right? Uh, Hollywoodized it, right? Yeah, and it's made it into a Hollywood film, right? But a lot of histori historical facts are true, right? Yeah, and it's a play uh, which begins with this whole uh, question of penance, right? So that's the way the play is constructed, right? The first scene of the play, uh, Henry II, though he's the king of England, He's being whipped, right? Because that's the penance he is given for killing Beckett, right? So that's how the play begins, and that's how uh, then the whole question of Beckett and who is Beckett gets unraveled, right? So Beckett is one of these intellectual people, but he's not intelligent enough. That's what uh, you get in the handout if you watch the play, right? He's not intelligent enough to deal with the politics of England, right? So, uh, of course, he's very capable, right? And he goes to become a priest because the king wants it, right? And you can't disobey a king, right? Now, when he goes to become a priest, he is uh, exposed to a lot of learning, right? And, of course, uh, according to Arnold Beckett, he's got a spiritual transformation, right? And he finds that this whole way of going about it is that... His mission as a priest is very important and he takes the mission very seriously, right? Yeah. And because of that, he has to stand against the king because he has to support some priests who are murderers, right? This is happening in India today, right? We have the Yogi Adityanath government. We have the, the BJP in the center, right? And they're protecting all sorts of murderers and criminals because they're so-called so religious people, right? Yeah. This is happening today in our country, right? Uh, we can see what's happening in UP just now, the Hathras case and all that kind of thing, right? Whether the government is going out to protect people, right? Not not because they're religious per se, but because they're upper caste people, right? Yeah, and they're party people, right? So that's a little different. But what happens in this time of England is uh, Thomas Beckett, if you look at him from the 20th century perspective, right? He's totally wrong. Right? Yeah? And he feels sorry for Henry II. Right? Because as a king, he can't take action against people who are murderers. Okay? He can't take action about against looters and murderers just because they're priests. Right? And the canon law says that you are not supposed to touch a priest. Right? You're not... If you touch a priest, you can be thrown out of the church. Right? 
Yeah, and of course, Henry the Second is not wise. He's not wise uh, as Henry the Eighth, right? And of course, that takes a long time because Henry the Eighth realizes that if he if he calls himself the head of the church, he can separate from the Roman Catholic Church, right? Which is a political move, right? Yeah, that's something that he learns from Luther, right? So we'll come to that very soon. Yeah, but what is interesting is that. Uh, Thomas A. Beckett says that look in the name of the church and in the name of the canon law, right? The canon law is your own uh, is the church kind of law, right? Yeah, where the church is supposed to take action against people, right? You have laws which say that you are not allowed to convert people uh, in the church, right, to Christianity unless they're really willing to do that, right? And you have to you can't convert them, and if somebody does that, the church is supposed to pull the, the priest up. Right? Yeah. So all these laws are all written down. Right? Yeah. And uh, you have to be tried by a church court for suppose a priest goes and gets married to a woman. Right? Actually, there are laws over there which is, says that you are automatically out of the church. Right? If you get married, you are automatically out because the, the priest, even today, yeah, the priest is supposed to be celibate. They're not supposed to uh, have sex. Right? And they're supposed to be. Uh, single people right so that's the idea and that's been a long tradition right so what happens over there and it's good that you brought this question up because we'll understand luther and what happens in luther's day and what happens to henry the eighth and all much better right yeah so so that's one of the things that happens over here and the medieval church uh was not really the ideal church because you had a lot of priests with mistresses right you had a lot of illegitimate sexuality going on, right? Yeah, and uh, even today, there's a big question about why does the church or the Roman Catholic Church talk about uh, or insist on the idea of celibacy, right? And then, of course, the answer is that this has been a long tradition, right? Yeah, uh, if you learn, uh, you read church history, you have people like Augustine, who's about the fourth century, right? All these people are not priests, right? There's a man called Ambrose, who I think we talked about when, no, I'm sorry, I didn't talk to your class, I talked to another class, where we talk about reading, right? Yeah, so when we're talking about the history of reading, uh, you have this man called Ambrose, who's a little before uh, Augustine, right? And what happens with him is, he's one of the people, they already know about this thing called silent reading, right? So the idea of silent reading is further taken further by a man called Augustine, right? Who's also the person who gives us the word soliloquy, right? Solo and loquy, right? That is a person talking to themselves, right? So, and he's also the person who gives you uh, the prose work called the Confessions. Hmm? So when we're talking about what is an autobiography, etc., we'll have to refer to Augustine because that's the first autobiography in the European consciousness, right? Yeah, so uh, that's what we know. But what is interesting is when we come, when we are there at Henry II's time, uh, you don't have armies just as you have over here, even in Edward III's time, you don't have an army, right? You don't have a national army, right? You have still private armies. You have, okay, the idea of a national army, all those kinds of ideas have not come up, right? Yeah, so uh, we have to wait for a later date 
when you have all these things and uh, you don't have all the kind of security to the king all this uh, the idea of the king as exclusive right uh, all these things don't happen right yeah they, they might have a kind of uh, pride of place or privilege right but the king also mixes with the common people yeah right and even that happens as late as the 18th century when you have charles the second right yeah so you get all these kind of things which yet yeah, you begin to wonder what's going on yeah uh, another question yeah do you have another question pardon yes of course Uh, yeah. No, no, no. See, uh, if you were there for the lectures, or if you checked the uh, lectures, we're talking about Chaucer's England and Caxton's England, right? Where people have private armies, right? They're not the king's army, right? The whole idea of the king's army, the king's horsemen, and all those kind of things that comes later, right? Yeah. So at this point of time, they don't. They have to hire. the armies right and that's exactly what these two chapters are about if you have read them right and we talked about them if you not read them and attended the lecture we read this here right yeah so uh, if the king had to do anything and fight a war and give people uh, send some english troops to france or germany or anywhere else right he had to hire these people from the lords or the, these people would give it to them for a favor from the king right everything is favor right is not money but it's favor for favor right that's a word you'll find if you watch anbi's becket right yeah or read the play right so uh, that's of course a, a, a play where peter o'toole acts as henry and uh, yeah i think peter o'toole acts as henry and uh, uh, richard burton acts as uh, becket right yeah if i'm not wrong yeah i think i saw the play years ago right yeah so you might like to look at that right and uh, so the idea is you have favor for favor the idea of favor for favor is you give me your uh your your soldiers right uh and i give you some other benefits right maybe i give you uh a little less tax right or no tax right or i let you have this land or that land or i do not know what kind of favors they have but they would give there's only one thing that operates the idea and of course it's converted into power right status right so you have the status that well i lend the king my army that's the status that you have right and you become powerful in the eyes of people right so that's how society works right because society doesn't work only materially but it also works in this idea of how do you regard people right who is important and who is not important right so that's something that we have when we're talking about uh, the idea of lending your army to the king right yeah uh, we have that also over here in, even now right yeah so why do you regard somebody as high because the person has done you so many favors right yeah and that's how uh, of course uh, the unfortunate thing is becomes it's become what we call corruption today right because the whole idea of giving gifts and for a gift you get a favor right that happens in the trial of uh, clive 
that happens in the trial of Warren Hastings, right? And the idea is that in India, people give you gifts for some political favors, right? Yeah, and gifts of land were given, and that's the the whole idea of the Begum of Oath case with Warren Hastings, and for which Warren Hastings is pulled up by the British government because, according to them, it's corruption, right? Yeah. In the if it happened in Chaucer's day, it would not be corruption because that was the done thing. Yeah, that was something that you gave a you didn't have a system where you could have money, right? And you can exchange money in that way, right? So you exchange power for what you call a favor of letting out your army, right? And these people would have a kind of power over the people, right? In what you call the feudal king, the feudal world, right? So you still got a lot of power and. You you get more power if you have enough of people to lend to the king to fight a war, right? For the king's war, and you get a kind of a uh, a status of prestige, uh, which actually means something to people, right? Yeah. Of course, today we are talking about a different world. We are talking about a democratic world, right? Where I don't even care for who the prime minister or the president of the country is, right? Because we are all equal, right? And we are all equal before the law, right? Though, of course, people are in India slipping back into this feudal kind of mentality, right? Uh, but that's not the way the law is, because the law is actually saying that whether you are the president of the country or a beggar on the street, the law has to be the same for everybody, right? Yeah. Of course, the laws are being abused. The Supreme Court and the high courts are not the the real ideal kind of places that they were supposed to be, right? Yeah. And that we know. We're reading papers and we find all these things out, right? But when we're talking about Chaucer's England, the idea of law itself is under question, right? And one of the first people who question it is Henry II before Chaucer, right? Now, uh, so that's uh, the law and the legal side, right? And now you have uh, what happens over there is we're talking about a country where people are not very serious about a lot of things, right? There is poverty that's rampant. Right, the idea of you going on a pilgrimage is, and you have to go with so many people as you have in Chaucer's uh, uh, Canterbury Tales. Right, is because you actually need people to support you from robbers, right? Yeah, and thieves, right? And uh, these people would be armed robbers and thieves. And if you were alone, uh, the idea is that you could be robbed, right? And of course. If you were not uh, big enough in number, right? If you had perhaps five people or six people, ten people would come and they would rob you and beat you up and take your stuff, right? And maybe some of them would also be killed, right? Yeah. But of course, that might have not been uh, the the case, right? Uh, because we don't have the kind of police operations, right, that we have today, right? So the idea of uh, what what would you get by killing somebody? Robbing them is good enough, right? Yeah, unless there was an uh, there was a motive behind killing them to get their land or anything of the sort, right? Which might have also happened, right? But that would be uh, how do I get somebody who's related, right? So you you kill a relation of like you have in Macbeth, right? So then you can become king, right? So th those are the customs which were around the place. And it's only very slowly that these change, right? 
So I don't know if I've answered your question enough, right? But when you can read more about Thomas A. Beckett, yeah? You can read Paul Johnson's History of Christianity, right? Uh, yeah, he's talking about Christianity from the earliest till the 20th century. And he's saying that, well, when Christianity is almost over, I'm writing this book, right? Yeah, so uh, he writes it before, uh, uh, before 2000, right? So he's already writing the book and he's saying that, well, uh, Christianity is almost over. So let's look back at Christianity for 2000 years and see what has happened in the history of Christianity, right? So that's the history over there. Uh, history of Christianity by Paul Johnson. Yeah. yeah, he's not a mainstream historian, right? And I don't know what is the 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 other kind of history that we have. But I was just interested in reading, so I bought all these kind of funny books, and uh, it's an interesting book. He's also got another. He's a non-mainstream historian, right? He also writes an interesting book called The Birth of the Modern, right? And is he's talking about 1815 to 1830, right? And he says that these 15 years changed the world, right? He's talking about Latin America. He's talking about the social history of the walls and the tango and all those kind of things, right? Uh, which happens in, Europe, in Germany, in Europe, right? Yeah. And he's also talking about the idea of smallpox. No, not he. Sorry. Uh, he's also talking about uh, the revolutions that take place in Latin America and how they get freedom uh, maybe 150 years before us. Right? Yeah. And then they are also colonized by the Spanish and the Portuguese. Right? So you can read Paul Johnson. Uh, he's got another book called Intellectuals. Right? These are the three books I know about. Yeah. And he's non-mainstream. He's a non-mainstream historian. Right? So, yeah. He's talking about Napoleon because Napoleon is a very important figure there. He's talking about calculus and he's talking about the steam engine and the first train and all those kind of very interesting things that happen. Right? Yeah, uh, so, and of course he's talking about India because India was colonized then and he's talking about how the English won a war against Napoleon, right? Yeah, and he talks about this man called Wellington and I, I, of course as a child I went and saw this movie called Waterloo, right? Which is about the, def the defeat of Napoleon, right? Yeah, on the seafront, uh, Nelson is the one who uh, wins the French, right? And on the land front, it's this man called uh, Wellington who actually defeats Napoleon, right? And the interesting thing, which I didn't know till I read Johnson, is Wellington actually is a person who's very close to the place I spent most of my life in. That's Pune, right? There's a place called Ahmednagar, right? And uh, he refers to Wellington as Wellington of Ahmednagar. Right? So Wellington first fought the Marathas, right? And that's how they established the colony, right? In uh, India. Yeah, and Ahmednagar is a very important place because of that, right? Uh, of course, it's late. It's also important because of this uh, lady called uh, Pandita Ramabai, right? Ramabai, right? Pandita Ramabai who converts to Christianity and uh, in fact, one of my friends told me to go and get all the papers from there and uh, when I was doing a work, some work on the Bible, right? So, uh, you might like to think about uh, that also, right? Yeah. So, what's interesting is uh, he's actually talking about 
how people from are trained in the colonies and then are used in main land, uh, main land Europe to fight wars, right? And they win. Wellington wins the war. He first fights the Marathas, right? And then he goes to England and he fights Napoleon and he, he wins a war against this uh, kind of person who thinks that he is going to be emperor of the world, right? Of course, that's much later. That's in the, uh, in the 18th, in the 19th century, right? But what is interesting and what is important is that Paul Johnson is trying to tell us about Thomas Beckett, right? And if you want, I can give you some snapshots of that. I can put it up on the uh, on the group, right? Uh, I've got Paul Johnson here. I don't know how much he's written about. Uh, I've forgotten about how much he's written on uh, Thomas Beckett, right? But he doesn't paint him in a good light, right? And uh, uh, there's another work on uh, on the Canterbury Festival and Thomas Beckett. Right, and that's by a 20th century writer uh, called T.S. Eliot, who writes a poetic drama called Murder in the Cathedral. Right, and when I was in school, they actually used a church to stage the play. Right, so uh, so that's something interesting. Right, and um, uh, T.S. Eliot did it for the Canterbury Festival. Right, yeah, so. You might like all that. And I actually went to Canterbury and you actually saw the spot that uh, Thomas Beckett was murdered on, right? They marked it down and it's kind of a sacred, hallowed kind of place, right? Uh, yeah, so you, you get all that and there's a lot of history and the church itself is very, very old, right? Yeah, and they're doing a lot of restoration work. And of course, they bought a cassette with something called a Gregorian chant because that's the kind of chant uh, that they used to, the music that they used to play. Of course, Trevelyan is not talking about all that and that's where I find that Trevelyan is not good enough, right? Yeah, so what happens to the music, right? Yeah, so they have this music called the Gregorian chant, right? And, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for asking all those questions because it made me the lecture more alive than I would, uh, was getting a little bored with it, right? Yeah, thank you for the question because you have the church music, right? And you have secular music, right? And the secular music is in what you call the ballad form, right? Now you have people like Peter Widdison, yeah, one minute, yeah, who tells us that the ballad is a feudal form, right? Yeah, come on, ask your question. No, no, please. A little louder, please. I can't hear you. Yes. No, no. Henry the Second. Henry the Second is the one who asked for that. Yeah, yeah. Thomas. Henry the Second is the one who actually thinks about it, right? And Henry the Second's way of solving the problem, which is something that doesn't get solved, is that he makes his friend Thomas the Becket, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, because of his uh, kind of uh, relationship with the Pope, right? Because that's a very important position even today, right? The Archbishop of Canterbury is like the Pope in uh, uh, the Pope of England, right? And of course, today, 
the the anglican church has got nothing to do with the catholic church but once upon a time they the the archbishop of canterbury canterbury was a person who had tremendous amount of power uh, and that's why uh, henry the second advises becket to become a priest etc right and becket has what you call a conversion right is not converting from one religion to the other right but the idea of the conversion is turning away from a different kind of life right so he is one of the people who's a womanizer along with henry the second right the kings had access to a lot of women right because of their power and all that kind of thing and that's the uh, that's also what you have right yeah so that's one and he was out gaming and hunting and all those kind of things and all that changes and he has a religious conversion and he becomes a spiritual man right that's what anby shows in his play right what uh, paul johnson is actually telling us is that becket was not a good man right and we also found that out because we were doing uh, murder in the cathedral right yeah and in murder in the cathedral ts eliot uh, shows you that actually henry the second was wrong right yeah and the idea of murder is terrible right and he gets thomas a becket murdered with his goons right yeah so he's murdered on christmas day when he's saying his sermon in the church right yeah so that's uh, i remember that uh, there was this uh, senior of mine called michael david right and i remember him dressing up as a bishop and giving this wonderful speech uh, when i was school uh, child right yeah but of course i didn't know anything about thomas a becket till i became an ma student and when i was doing mphil we had to play murder in the cathedral right yeah and of course uh, chaucer's uh, when by the time chaucer's around the pilgrimage is already established okay thomas a becket is made a saint right by the church right and uh, what happens over there is uh, you, what chaucer's protesting about is the idea of the church making money right yeah you have all these things like you have in many shrines in india right whether they're catholic or non catholic or whatever that is right yeah we have all these shrines over here you can go to jesuri you can go to any other part right and you have the same kind of thing which happens in all religions right you have people making uh, a little piece of hand right if a hand is injured right or wax right and they offer that up right so i don't know if you've gone to religious places uh, i'm crazy about temples right and i've gone uh, done uh, quite a lot of uh, that kind of work right yeah so you find that this is something that happens right so this is the nature of religion all over the world right where you try to exploit people right by this idea of superstition yeah so that's actually what henry the second doesn't say because he's a he's a catholic okay he actually isn't going to say that i'm going to be an atheist right because if you are an atheist that was even worse than being thrown out of the church right yeah because if you are an atheist if the, of course if uh, the pope had to throw him out i don't know what the reaction would be right because this is uh, maybe the pope would have to think about it because this is also political you know? right the pope would have to think about suppose they throw him in second out what would happen right and they don't think about it when it comes to martin luther right yeah okay if they thought about it right and said that well luther yes 
what you're saying is right. Yeah, the church is wrong, right? Which they do about 100 years or more after Luther, right? Many, many.